Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome once again to Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around, that celebrates the completion, the fulfillment, the full realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and its sacraments. As you are undoubtedly aware, tomorrow we will be celebrating Pentecost, and as you may be less aware, Pentecost itself is the fulfillment in Christianity of a feast which was the prefigurement of Pentecost in Judaism, known as Shavuos, as Pentecost falls 50 days after Easter, so Shavuos on the Jewish calendar falls on the 50th day after Passover, as Easter is the fulfillment of the promise of Passover, Pentecost is the fulfillment of the promise of Shavuos. And I thought I would take the opportunity to play a very, very beautiful and erudite and inspiring talk by another enthusiastic Jewish convert to Catholicism, Dr. Larry Feingold, on the Feast of Pentecost as the fulfillment of Shavuos. I hope you enjoy it. Without wasting any further time, let's turn to Dr. Larry Feingold in his talk on the Jewish roots of Pentecost. So in this last talk in our series, we're going to look at Pentecost so as we can prepare better um, for the Feast of Pentecost this Sunday. And so we'll look at Jewish Pentecost and Christian Pentecost and look at the connection between them. And as we've seen so many times in this series... Um, there's always a deep connection between the mysteries of faith in the Old and the New Testaments and a deepening through Christ, through the Messiah. And we see that in a beautiful way with regard to Pentecost. So Pentecost was one of the great feasts in the Jewish calendar as well as in the Christian. Um, Unfortunately, our calendars no longer coincide. So the Jews won't be celebrating Pentecost this Sunday as we are. Um, They'll be celebrating this year on June 10th. But in any case, originally, they were meant to go together. And the reason for the difference is the way we compute the years, um, simply because of the calendar. Um, But in any case, um, they were meant to coincide. And in both cases, Jewish Pentecost and Christian Pentecost, it's a conclusion to the whole season that begins with Passover, Easter. So Jewish Pentecost is the completion of Jewish Passover. Well, likewise, Christian Pentecost is the completion of Easter and the Easter season. The Easter season comes to an end this Sunday. And in the same way, Pentecost celebrates the completion of the birth of Israel and of the church. It began the birth of Israel on Passover when they were led out from Egypt, but it didn't come into completion until they got to Mount Sinai, where they were given the law on Pentecost. So Israel was born more properly on Pentecost than on Passover. And likewise, the church. The church was born on Good Friday, as Jesus died on the cross, and when he was pierced in his side after he died, the blood and the water and the blood that came out symbolized the sacraments from which the church is born. But nevertheless, the fullness of the sacraments wasn't given until Pentecost when they received confirmation. And so the church is fully born on Pentecost. It began to be born on um, Good Friday and Easter Sunday, but it was brought to completion on Pentecost. So there's a beautiful parallel there. We'll see that more as we go. In both cases, there's the season, a 50-day season of Easter in the church and a season of Passover in Israel, marking this time of expectation until Pentecost. Okay. Now, the name Pentecost is, comes from the Greek word for 50th. So, Pentecost meant the 50th day after Passover. 
And that was the name by which the Greek-speaking Jews at the time of Jesus referred to this festival. Pentecost. And the reason for the name is given in the Bible, in Leviticus. Um, in Leviticus we read, chapter 23, you shall count from the morrow after the Sabbath, and that refer, we'll see in a minute what day that is, from the day that you brought the sheep of the wave offering, seven full weeks, counting 50 days to the morrow of the seventh Sabbath. And then you shall present a cereal offering to the Lord of, of the new grain. And you shall make proclamation on the same day and hold a holy convocation and do no work and there will be a statute for all generations. That's the biblical text speaking about this feast of Pentecost in Israel. Now, the day was to start is ambiguous. It speaks starting from the Sabbath. Well, what Sabbath? And so the Jews, there was a difference of opinion among different groups of Jews, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, about how to count the Sabbath. The Pharisees counted from the, the Sabbath, meaning the first day of Passover. So they counted 50 days from the Passover till... Um, uh, 50 days later, which comes out to the sixth day of the Jewish month of um, Sivan. Whereas the Sadducees counted the first Sabbath within Passover. It comes out more or less the same. But in, if you did it the way the Sadducees do, the first, you start counting the first Sabbath, Saturday, after Passover. Pentecost will always be a Sunday, seven weeks later. And that's what the tradition of the church follows. Whereas Jews today, they followed the practice of the Pharisees. And so it's not always a Sunday. It's whatever day of the week is 50 days from the Passover. That's just a technical detail. Okay. Jews today speak about this feast as the Feast of Weeks. And so in, in Hebrew that would be Shavuot or Shavuos. Um, and the reason why it's called Weeks is because it's celebrated seven weeks after the Passover. So seven weeks of 49 days plus one makes 50 days. And so Pentecost or seven weeks comes out to the same. Okay, and it's one of the three feasts in Israel. It was one of the three feasts in which all the male adult Israelites had to go to the temple in Jerusalem, as long as this temple still stood. Now, the temple was destroyed in the year 70 AD, 40 years after the crucifixion of, of Christ. And so they don't go to Jerusalem anymore because there's no temple there. But before that time, for example, during Jesus' lifetime, he would have gone every year to the temple on the Feast of Pentecost 50 days after Passover. And what they did was they offered the first fruits of the grain harvest. Because in Palestine, the harvest was twice a year. They had the, the grain harvest in the spring and then the harvest of fruits in the fall. And so they would offer the, the first grain, I guess, was barley. They would offer on Passover. And then the wheat harvest was the 50 days later. And so they'd offer the first fruits of the wheat harvest to the Lord in the temple on Pentecost, 50 days after um, Passover. And the idea that was to give thanks to the goodness of the Lord who provided them with bread. And so we thank God's material um, sustenance but much more importantly was thanking him for the spiritual gifts and what would be the principal spiritual gift given to Israel the law the Torah and that was given 50 days after Passover and so after they after the Jews crossed um, the Red Sea they wandered in the desert until they got to Mount Sinai and then on Mount Sinai they had to purify themselves three days and God revealed the Ten Commandments to them 50 days later and so the principal thing that Jews give thanks for on Pentecost is not simply material bread but the spiritual bread of the Torah of the law okay? and so just as Israel started to come into existence as a nation when they were led out of Egypt with the miracles and the, the plagues etc they weren't fully made into a, a holy people until they got to Mount Sinai and received the law because Israel without the law isn't yet completely Israel and right? so um, Pentecost was to give thanks in these two ways materially the first fruits of the harvest but more importantly, to give thanks for the giving of the law. And so Jews refer to this feast also as the feast of the giving of the law, or sometimes they call it the feast of revelation. 
because it was the revelation of the Torah. Today, the agricultural aspect has dropped out because there's no temple, right? and because our harvest doesn't correspond to, the, uh, to that time of year anymore. Um, but the Jews still maintain the second part, giving thanks for the law, and that's become the, the principal meaning of the feast. And um, the night before, it's a traditional custom um, among Orthodox Jews to hold a vigil, the vigil of Pentecost, and very often Christians hold a vigil of Pentecost to celebrate the coming of the Holy Spirit. Well, Jews would hold a vigil of Pentecost in which they would read from the Torah. They would read from each book, a section, the most important passages, to, in that way to prepare for celebrating the gift of having received the Torah. And on the Feast of Pentecost, in the synagogue, obviously they read from the Ten Commandments. That would be the, the principal Torah reading, because that's what's being celebrated. Okay. Now, the time between Passover and Pentecost, for Jews, is, um, has a special name um, called counting the Omer. Each day, between, after Passover, in the evening, they, um, there's a special blessing in which they bless God, and they say the number of days from the Passover, and implying also how many days are left until Pentecost. So, for example, they would say, um, Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who sanctified us with his commandments and commanded us to count the Omer. The Omer refers to the, um, the sacrifice of barley in the temple that they did on Passover. And so, it, counting the Omer means counting the days from Passover until Pentecost. So, they would say that blessing, and they would say, This is the seventh day um, of the Omer. Now, why would they do this? To heighten the expectation for the giving of the law. In other words, they count the days so that when the 50th day comes in which the law was given, they'll appreciate it. Well, something similar should be done, obviously, by Christians. We should count the days from Easter to Pentecost in expectation of the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Okay. So let's pass now to look at Christian Pentecost. So, uh, again, it's the same 50 days, except that we count it 50 days from, um, from Easter, and so, Pentecost is always a Sunday for us. Um, and just as we've seen in earlier talks, there's a beautiful parallel between the Jewish Passover and Christian Passover, which is Easter, the, Friday, the Paschal Mystery. There's no less of a parallel between Jewish Pentecost and Christian Pentecost. And liturgically, we count those 50 days as all one season, the season of Easter. And it comes to conclusion with the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. Really, in other words, it's a whole season in which we should be expecting, with greater expectation, the fullest outpouring that will come on the 50th day. Even though we've already been confirmed when we were young, we still should expect a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit liturgically on Pentecost. Right? And so we should have a great um, devotion um, celebrating Mass on Pentecost. Just as the Jews gave thanks for the giving of the Torah. Now Christ promised this first Pentecost before he ascended into heaven. Right? So he told his disciples that they were to stay in Jerusalem and await the gift of the Holy Spirit. Right? He said he had to go to the Father first, but they were to wait there in Jerusalem in expectation and prayer, waiting for the, the gift of the Holy Spirit. For example, um, on the day of his ascension, which we celebrated last Sunday, he charged them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but before many days pass, you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so he's speaking of Pentecost. And what did they, the apostles do then? They asked him, is it at that time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? The kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times and seasons which the Father has fixed by his authority. But you shall receive power from the Holy Spirit. I'm sorry, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. 
Now, what were the apostles thinking when they asked, is it at that time that you will restore the kingdom? Probably don't know, but probably they were thinking in a temporal sense, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel like it was in the time of David and Solomon? And so you can see that they were still a bit confused about the nature, or maybe more than a bit, about the nature of the Messianic kingdom, even on the day of the ascension, 40 days after Easter. And it's interesting, Jesus doesn't directly contradict them when that question about, is it then that you're going to restore the kingdom? Instead, he simply speaks of Pentecost and the gift of the Holy Spirit as if that was an answer to their question. And so we could ask ourselves, well, what does the gift of the Holy Spirit have to do with the restoration of the kingdom of Israel? And it has everything to do with it. Why is that? Because with the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church is fully born. Well, the church is the kingdom that Jesus was speaking about all through his public ministry. Jesus started by saying, the kingdom of God is at hand. What was he talking about? He was talking about the church. And the church comes fully into being at Pentecost. And so the answer was precise. Is it at that time that you're going to restore the kingdom? And the answer was yes. How? Through the gift of the Holy Spirit. But not the kingdom that they were expecting. The kingdom instead that we've received, which is the Catholic Church. Now, it's interesting that Christ didn't send the Holy Spirit when he was still on earth. And we could ask ourselves, why was that? Right? He could have sent the Holy Spirit, for example, during his public ministry, before he was crucified. He could have sent it during the 40 days after his resurrection when he was still on earth and seen by the disciples. But he didn't. He said, um, for example, at the Last Supper, the disciples um, um, asked him about, um, about what was going to happen. And, and Jesus said, it is to your advantage that I go away first. If I do not go away the counselor, the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So you can see in the divine plan, Jesus had to first ascend into heaven, and then from heaven, he sends the Holy Spirit on the 50th day. So why is this? Why did he first have to go into heaven physically, by being by ascending, before he sends the Holy Spirit? Well, one reason is to make a parallelism with Moses and Jewish Pentecost. So before Israel received the law written on the on the tablets, right, the Ten Commandments, written with the, digit of, with, the, with the finger of God, Moses first had to ascend the mountain, physically. Right? He had to go up Mount, um, Mount Sinai and be with God for 40 days and 40 nights. And then he comes down with the law, right, with the tablets of the law. Jesus, before he sends the living law, which is the Holy Spirit, right, the Holy Spirit is the living Torah, before he sends that, he first ascends. But he doesn't simply ascend Mount Sinai. Right? He ascends a far higher ascent. In other words, he goes up to heaven and above all the heavens to the right hand of the Father. And from that uh, position at the right hand of the Father, he sends the living law, the Holy Spirit. The difference is that Moses came back down with the tablets, whereas Jesus stays at the right hand of the Father. But of course, he does come down, but not in a, in a visible way as he had previously. And in fact, he did promise that, right? He, before, on the day of the ascension, he said, um, when he told them to go out and to baptize all nations and to teach, he also said, I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. But how is he going to be with us? Not with the same visible presence that he was before. He's present precisely through the Spirit. In other words, by sending the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, Jesus made himself present spiritually to the church in a more intimate and deeper way than he was even present before. And he does this through the sacraments. The sacraments is the channel by which Christ continues to be present to his church for the past 2,000 years. Right? He had to leave physically. 
but he didn't leave us orphans because he instituted these channels of grace, channels by which the Holy Spirit is given, and the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, Spirit of the Father and of the Son, and therefore it makes the Son present with us. And we see that at Pentecost. We'll, we'll see in a minute. Now, St. Paul speaks about this in a difficult passage of one of his letters, the letter to the Ephesians. And this is at the bottom of page 3, for those of you following. It's chapter 4 of the letter to the Ephesians. And he quotes a psalm from the Old Testament, Psalm 68, verse 18. And he interprets it in terms of Christ's ascension into heaven. And the, the psalm says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. That's the text. It's, and if you just read the Psalms, it's very difficult to know what's, who is the he and what is being spoken of. It appears to be God, but um, it's, it's uh, mysterious. And St. Paul reads it in terms of Christ's ascension. He took captives, and then he gave gifts to men. What are the gifts? The Holy Spirit. Who are these captives? Well, we talked about them in a previous talk, for those of you who are here. The, um, the harrowing of hell. What did Jesus do on Holy Saturday? Right? He, on Good Friday, his soul was separated from his body at death. That's what happens at death. The soul gets separated. What did his body stay in the tomb? And what did his soul do? It went, we say in the creed, it descended into to hell, meaning the underworld. In, in Hebrew, it would be Sheol, the place of the, of the souls of the dead. And um, he went to those who were, died in the grace of God, who are said to be in the bosom of Abraham. And what did he do? He showed them his glory, and he brought them with him on the ascension into heaven. Their souls, at least, not their bodies yet. They have to wait for the last resurrection. But he brought their souls to heaven so that they could see the beatific vision. And so that's like, the, St. Paul interprets this in terms of the harrowing of hell, taking those holy souls, for example, Adam and Eve, Abraham, Moses, David, Sarah, Rebecca, etc., Rachel, um, St. Joseph, John the Baptist. He took them up to heaven, part of his spoils. And then, so he brought things up to heaven, but at the same time, he brought from heaven gifts to men still here on earth. And what gifts were those? The gifts of the Holy Spirit. And so there's a double movement. He brought these souls of the just into heaven and he took from heaven the Holy Spirit to give um, to us in, its, in a greater fullness so St. Paul says uh, he says this is still page 3 when he uh, towards the bottom, last paragraph when he ascended on high he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men in saying he ascended what does that mean but that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth that would be the, the harrowing of hell the descent into limbo or the bosom of Abraham um, he who descended is he also who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. That would be his ascension on the 40th day. And then he brought gifts to men. And his gifts were that some should be apostles. This is on page 4 now. That some should be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors, some teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, and to the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what is he talking about here? He's talking about Pentecost, that Christ sent these gifts to the church to build up the church. And the final goal of the gifts of Pentecost are ultimately sanctity, so that each one of us can reach the full stature of Christ. Why? Because at baptism, it begins the work of conforming with Christ. We're, at baptism, we're given uh, sanctifying grace, and also the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but in germ, and confirmation gives a fuller outpouring. And the idea of confirmation is it brings you to spiritual maturity. What was begun in baptism is brought to completion, to maturity, in confirmation. And the, the purpose of that is that we may all attain the maturity of Christ. In other words, that the life of Christ may be brought to maturity in us. But in order for that to happen, the church needs to be built up. 
In other words, it's not just an individualist thing. It's not that Christ did this so that each one of us individually could be made um, saints. But he, he wanted his body, in other words, the church, to be perfected. And that needs to be perfected by many different gifts given to different individuals, to different members. So some need to be apostles. Some need to be evangelists. Some need to be pastors. Some need to be teachers. Each in their own place in the body. Every gift is good. And it's all for the building up of the body in the whole. Right? So Christ ascended into heaven so that he could then send the Holy Spirit to build up his body here on earth. Even though he physically remains in heaven, he builds up his body through the Spirit. And of course through the, through, uh, the Eucharist. Right? So just as Moses ascended Mount Sinai so as to come back with the tablets of the law, Jesus ascended up to heaven so as to send the Spirit to write the law on our hearts. Right? So let's look at that now. In the Old Testament... In, in several of the prophets we find a prophecy of a new covenant and a new law that will be given and that new, um, that new covenant and that new law will consist precisely in writing the law spiritually in our hearts for example in Ezekiel chapter 36 a beautiful messianic prophecy he says quote I will take you from among the Gentiles and I will gather you together out of all the countries and I will bring you into your own land and I will pour upon you... So now, if we just hear that, we might think, well, that means he's going to gather the Jews out from the exile and bring them to Israel. That's what one might think. But if you keep on reading, you see that can't be the real meaning. It says, And I will pour upon you clean water. Or at least not the whole meaning. I will pour upon you clean water, and you shall be cleansed from all your filthiness. And I will cleanse you from all your idols. And I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit in your midst, and I will cause you to walk in my commandments and to keep my judgments and to do them. So what, what is the prophecy about? The reference to clean water is clearly a reference to baptism. Right? And the reference to putting my spirit in you is a reference to Pentecost and confirmation. In other words, in this prophecy, Ezekiel prophesies two spiritual gifts that are intimately connected but distinct. One gift, pouring of clean water, by which sins are forgiven. I will wipe away your filthiness from you. Forgiveness of sins. And a second gift, by which he will take away the hardness of hearts, symbolized in that heart of stone, and will give them a heart of flesh, which has the power to enable them to walk in the commandments that they've already received. And that will involve putting his spirit in their midst. Right? So that refers to uh, Pentecost. And so you can see that the, the gift of the Spirit doesn't replace the law or somehow abrogate the law or take the law away. No, the whole purpose of the gift of the Spirit is to enable you to keep the law, to enable you to walk in the law in the way of the law the moral law right? in other words the, the spirit is given so that you can do the ten commandments more fully now what about that first line the prophecy starts with um, I will take you out from your I will take you out from among the Gentiles and I will gather you together out of all the countries and bring you into your own land what does that refer to well if we think of baptism and confirmation Pentecost it refers to the calling into the church in other words the calling into the, the body of Christ is precisely taking you out from the Gentiles and inserting you into the new Israel or the completed Israel which is the body of Christ and so it's, it's a reference to the building up of the church through baptism and confirmation like the ingathering the ingathering into the church and so the land should be understood as meaning the church like the, the, the land in, in the old Testament 
right, was a physical land, the land of Israel. That's a figure or type pointing to the church as the spiritual land in which we are to be built up and to, and to find our home. Right? In other words, our home is meant to be in the church. A similar prophecy is given by Jeremiah, chapter 31, where he talks about a new covenant. He says, quote, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, so he's speaking of a, a second covenant. There was the first covenant that was started when he took them out of Egypt, but was completed at Mount Sinai, right? the, the old covenant. And so Jeremiah here foretells a new covenant different than that one. He says, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. In other words, in the messianic time. I will, pour, I will put my law within them and I will write it upon their hearts. That's the same message as in Ezekiel. He'll put the law on our hearts spiritually and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each man teach his neighbor and his brother saying, know the Lord, for they will know me. How? Through this spiritual gift. Obviously we still need to, to learn our catechism and go to lectures and, and be taught. But there's a spiritual... Uh, teaching that happens through, um, through the sacraments. Obviously, we need to complete it with formal, uh, more formal education. But, uh, right? So the new covenant that Jeremiah speaks here of here is a covenant that involves not the reception of law written on tablets of stone, but that same law, the very same law, but written on the heart. How? By the Holy Spirit. Right? In other words, the finger of God that wrote on tablets of stone now writes on hearts. So let's look now at what happened on that first Pentecost. So we'll look at Acts. It's related in Acts chapter 2, and verses 1 to 4. So this is the first Christian Pentecost. In other words, the first Pentecost after Jesus died. When the day of Pentecost had come, we read in Acts, they were all together in one place. And by the way, they all would be the, all the Christians, about 120. So the apostles, the other disciples, Our Lady, and the other pious women. They were all together praying in the cenacle, the upper room, which was the same place where they had the Last Supper, and the place where Jesus came to meet them on Easter Sunday. Right, that, that same upper room. Yeah. And you can, by the way, in, in um, Jerusalem today, it's, that place still exists. And it's interesting, there's the tomb of David below it. So Jews go there to venerate the tomb of David, but up, up above is the, is the cenacle. Okay, so that's where they were. And suddenly a sound came from heaven like the rush of a mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire, distributed and resting on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Unquote. So now, let's, we'll go through this part by part. It starts with the sound of, of a great wind. What would be the significance of the wind? Well, Spirit in Hebrew means wind. Right? Ruach is wind, wind or breath. And obviously, a physical wind is a fitting symbol to, um, to represent the wind that's spiritual, the spiritual wind of the, of the Spirit. And we've seen that... Um, Jesus uses that metaphor. For example, when Jesus was speaking with Nicodemus in John chapter 3 about baptism, Jesus said, you have to be born again. And Nicodemus didn't understand. And Jesus tries to explain, even more mysteriously, by speaking about a wind. He says, the wind blows where it will, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know whence it comes or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. And Jesus, we looked at this last week, Jesus is speaking about the grace given in baptism and the gifts of the Holy Spirit, but which are given in a fuller way in confirmation. And thus we're given in a fuller way at Pentecost. And so the wind that they physically heard was a symbol of the movement of the Spirit. And we see it in the Old Testament in many places. The um, wind used as a figure 
of the Holy Spirit. For example, there's Elijah at Mount Sinai, um, and he uh, he hears an earthquake first, and then uh, something a storm, and then the Spirit was in a breeze, in a little wind, was was the Spirit. Okay. Now the flames of fire that we see at Pentecost are also a symbol of the Holy Spirit because what the Holy Spirit does, its principal purpose, is to inflame us with charity. In other words, to to make charity come alive in us, come aflame. And so it's very traditional, it's very frequent to represent the Spirit with flames. Um, the rabbinical tradition speaks of flames and we see it on Mount Sinai. When Moses went up the mountain to speak with God face to face, we read that the glory of God settled on Mount Sinai the cloud covered it for six days, and on the seventh he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud, and the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain. And so when God appeared to, to Moses on Mount Sinai, he appeared under this form of fire. And the cloud would represent the, um, the mystical communication of the Holy Spirit, and the fire would represent the flame of charity. Right? Because the whole purpose of the law that was given to Moses is summed up in the double commandment of charity, to love your and to God above all things and your neighbor as yourself. And so those same two elements are present on Pentecost. The wind, similar to the cloud, and the flames, or tongues of fire, over each one of them. Now, why tongues? Well, because at Pentecost, the full outpouring of the Holy Spirit was to enable the apostles not only to have this flame of charity in their hearts, but to communicate it, in other words, to preach. And so it's fitting that the fire appeared as tongues, enabling them to speak. And, of course, that same day, they converted 3,000 people. Now, as uh, as Acts goes on... St. Luke tells us that there were many foreigners there because it was one of the feasts of pilgrimage. All the adult male Jews had to go to Jerusalem and thus many people who were living in the diaspora, for example, in Rome or or Greece or Turkey or Egypt, etc., they were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost. And they all, they didn't all speak Hebrew or Aramaic. Those Jews in the diaspora usually spoke Greek as a second language, but they would also have their own um, mother language, which would be the, the language that was spoken in those particular regions. In other words, the dialect of that part of Turkey or that part of uh, Egypt, etc. And so we see um, there were people there from... Uh, I'll just read the, the thing. They were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. At the sound of the wind, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered. Each one heard them speaking in his own language. And they were amazed, and they wondered, aren't these all Galileans? Uh, how is it that we hear each in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya, Cyrene, etc., etc., Rome, Cretans, Arabians. And we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. What's the, what would be the meaning of this? And so this um, is a figure of the mission of the church. So if the church is born at this event, Pentecost, and the church is meant precisely to extend to all nations. Jesus told his disciples, go to all nations and preach to every creature. The church needs to speak all languages. So on this day of Pentecost, miraculously, they were given to physically speak in all of these languages and be understood. And so, we could say it's the antitype or the opposite of what happened at Babel, with the Tower of Babel. So at the Tower of Babel, by trying to make, they wanted to make a name for themselves and rival God, make a tower that could reach the heavens and the result was the multiplication of tongues and the inability to communicate in the church of Pentecost there's the opposite of Babel they're given the ability to speak all languages and to be understood and thus to create unity so whereas the pride that was expressed in the tower of Babel resulted in the separation of nations 
Pentecost results in the opposite. The unification of nations, obviously the nations still remain separate, the languages remain separate, but the nations are brought together into one spiritual society, which is the church. And thus, mankind is reunited. What separated Babel is meant to be brought together in the church, and it began on Pentecost. That's what's the anti-Babel. And even today, the church speaks all languages, literally, right? The, the liturgy of the church is celebrated today in every language under the sun, just about. Um, even in Hebrew, right? In Jerusalem, you can go to Mass in Hebrew and hear the, the Eucharist and the consecration and the homily all in Hebrew, as well as in every other language. There's a beautiful um, um, homily of St. Augustine in which he speaks about that. This is on page 7. He says, The Holy Spirit continues today to allow us to speak in all tongues. This is back in 400. 1600 years ago at the time of the apostles the church was not yet spread through all the world all the earth and Christ did not yet have members in each nation who could speak its respective language and that is why St. Augustine explains as a sign of what was soon to happen each of the apostles by himself spoke all languages but now already the total body of Christ speaks nearly all languages and he was writing this 1500 years ago it's more true today May the church grow still more that she might speak all languages. Right? And this ought to be our desire as well. I speak all languages, he says. Why? Because I am in the body. I'm in the body of Christ, in the church of Christ. If the church of Christ speaks all languages, all are mine. Greek, Syrian, Hebrew, all languages are mine. For the unity of the peoples is mine. Each one of us can say that, being in the church. Right? The unity of peoples belongs to us. Or there's a, um, an ancient liturgical text, a text from the liturgy, says... The diversity of tongues is no longer an obstacle to the building of the church. It was an op- right? The diversity of tongues was an obstacle to building the Tower of Babel. They had to stop because they couldn't communicate. But the diversity of tongues is not an obstacle to building up the church. Why? Because the gift of the Spirit enables the church to speak all tongues. And how does she do it? Through her Catholic unity. In other words, there's a unity of faith that doesn't take away the difference. In other words, the different nations remain distinct, the languages remain distinct, but we share one faith. One baptism, one Lord, one creed, one hope, one gift of the Spirit. Right? That makes us one despite our um, national uh, or ethnic or um, linguistic differences. Okay. Now after this miracle in which the apostles were speaking all these tongues, some of the people who were there thought that they were drunk right? and made fun of them. And Peter stood up and uh, defended it. Right? And, and the fact was they were drunk, but not Physically, they were spiritually drunk. That's one of the effects of the Holy Spirit, is an ecstatic joy through the Spirit, which comes from charity. When God pours His charity into your heart, it produces joy. It's a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So they were drunk in a sense, but not the kind of drunkenness that the people thought. And so, Peter, to explain this, he takes a text from the um, prophets, the text of Joel, chapter 2, verses 28 to 29, which is uh, very beautiful. And the text goes like this In the last days, now, whenever you see the last days in the Old Testament, it refers to the messianic period. And so you don't know, I mean, it could refer to the whole time of the church, or it could refer to the second coming. But in any case, it refers to the messianic period. In other words, the time of the church. So Joel says, In the last days, it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions. And your old men shall dream dreams. And on my manservants and maidservants in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy. And it shall be that ever, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And so St. Peter reads that text from Joel. And then he goes on to explain it. Now, it's interesting that even the rabbis, the rabbinical tradition, recognizes that in the messianic time, the Spirit will be given, the text says it, not just to Israelites, but to all flesh. All flesh means all nations. And so that there'll be a gift of the Spirit also to the Gentiles, 
and to all the different members. In other words, young and old, men and women, um, slaves and free, rich and poor, educated and uneducated. Now, God had given the Holy Spirit before. This is a difficult question. The Holy Spirit wasn't given for the first time at Pentecost. Why? Because in the Old Testament, we read many times of a gift of the Holy Spirit. For example, when Saul was anointed by Samuel, Saul received the Holy Spirit, was made a new man. When David, and of course he lost it through infidelity, but nevertheless, he received the Spirit. David likewise received the Spirit when he was anointed and became a new man and prophesied. And many times we see the prophets were all filled with the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Um, at the time of Jesus, we see that um, St. Simeon was filled with the Holy Spirit. The prophetess Anna had the Holy Spirit. But nevertheless, it wasn't... Um, so what is meant by a new giving at Pentecost? So there has to be some difference between the way the Holy Spirit was given beforehand and the way it's given now in the church. Right? And so what would be the difference? Well, we could say that there are three, I'm just simplifying, three differences. In the Old Testament, it was given in an extraordinary way. It was given to some. Um, okay. So in the Old Testament, we see it given, for example... Um, to, those, to Samuel, to, to, to David, to Moses, etc., but not um, to everyone. Right? And, but the text of Joel says, all of your daughters and your sons. And in Pentecost, it was given to all of those praying in the synagogue. Right? How many people were praying in the synagogue? Not just the apostles, but the whole Christian community, the entire church. There were some 120, St. Luke tells us. Right? So they all received the, the Holy Spirit. So that's one difference. Another difference is that... Um, in the church, when at Pentecost, the Spirit is given precisely to build up the body of Christ. Right? So it's built to, to create the church. And thus, it's given not just in Israel, but it's to be extended to the ends of the earth. Just as the church is to reach out to, to all the Gentiles. Right? So it's universal in scope. And it's also universal in terms of all the members. And the third difference is that in, in the Old Testament, um, God gave the Spirit where He willed. But in the New Testament, in the New Covenant, God gives it through channels by which it's, uh, it's necessarily given unless you put an obstacle. Everyone who is brought to baptism and confirmation, unless they have an obstacle, which would be, for example, uh, an infant can't have an obstacle. There's simply no obstacle that he can put because the obstacle would be not wanting to receive it or lack of repentance, and he can't have that. And with regard to, um, to the adults who receive them, if, as long as they don't put that obstacle of lack of faith or lack of repentance, they necessarily, efficaciously receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So it's, there's an ordinary means. It's not just an extraordinary gift. But Christ willed that there be ordinary channels by which everyone can receive this gift. Right? So that's, those would be the three differences. And then, of course, we could expect that there be a fuller outpouring uh, of those gifts. And we see that in the Apostles. We'll, we'll look at that at the end. Okay, now let's make the connection between Pentecost and the Sacrament of Confirmation. Now, we re at baptism, we do receive the Holy Spirit. Everyone who's baptized has received the Holy Spirit. But a fuller outpouring is given at confirmation because they correspond to two different needs. Baptism is the need... What do you need in the spiritual life? What's the first thing that you need? To be born. Just as in the physical life, the first thing you need is birth. After birth, you need other things. For example, you need to be nourished, and that would be the Eucharist. And you also need to grow to maturity. Well, that corresponds to confirmation. In other words, confirmation would be a gift by which... The recipients are brought to spiritual maturity as long as they don't put an obstacle to Christ's gift. Okay, so it's a, the proper effect of confirmation is to strengthen the spiritual life that already exists in you from baptism, but to strengthen it and bring it to spiritual maturity. In other words, to insert you deeper into the life of Christ and His church, and by doing so, 
to give you the fuller gifts of the Holy Spirit and make you soldiers of Christ, in other words, apostles of Christ, in the world, in a hostile world, which is always hostile to Christ, and to make you apostles. Now at Pentecost, that was done by God himself. Right? He, God himself anointed them with the Spirit and with the flame and so forth. Um, but after Pentecost, we see that the gift of the Holy Spirit um, is done through a sacramental means, which would be the laying on of hands and the anointing with chrism. Now, where do we find that in the Bible? Because now Protestants don't accept this, right? Protestants don't accept confirmation as a true sacrament because they say, well, where do we see it in Scripture? The fact is, it is in Scripture. We find it in the Acts of the Apostles in two different places. And so let's look at that now. In um, chapter 8 of the Acts, we read that one of the deacons, right, they ordained the seven deacons, and one of them was Philip, and Philip went to Samaria, and he preached the word of God in Samaria, and the Samaritans believed, and he baptized them. But Philip was a deacon. Could he confirm? No, because the minister of confirmation has to be a bishop. That's what we know today, right? And in the time of um, the early church, who would correspond to the bishops? The apostles, right? The apostles were the bishops. In other words, the apostles had the fullness of holy orders. Deacons just had the, be- the beginning of it. And so Philip couldn't give confirmation. He could baptize, but he couldn't confirm. So what does, what does he do? He goes back. He tells the apostles. And the apostles send Peter and John. In other words, the apostles Peter and John go to Samaria. And we, say, we read this in Acts chapter 8. Um, that they um, came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For it had not yet fallen on any of them. They had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So John and Peter laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And so the miracle of Pentecost was repeated in Samaria several years later. And what was the means this time? The hands of the apostles. And that's what happens in confirmation today. Right? The, the bishop lays on hands and he anoints with chrism. We don't see the anointing, but we see the um, laying on of hands. And probably the anointing came later in time, in the second or third century. But right from the beginning, you have the laying on of hands. Now it's interesting that when this happened, when the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit, one of the people who was there was a magician, Simon the Magician. And... Um, a magician deals with um, infernal powers. In other words, they do things that look like miracles, but not through the power of God, but through the power of his adversary. Now, Simon was jealous of this power that the apostles had to lay their hands on people and they received the Holy Spirit. And so he, he wanted that power too. He didn't have that power. And so he offered money to Peter for the power to give the Holy Spirit. And that's where we get the word simony. Simony is trying to buy spiritual power. In other words, trying to, to get ecclesiastical office by offering a bribe, by offering money. And that's a blasphemy against the Spirit who gives freely, not by commercial exchange. And so that was the first example of simony. For example, if somebody tries to buy the papacy to, to be elected through giving bribes, that's the blasphemy of simony. Okay, we see the same sacrament later in chapter 19 of Acts. This time through St. Paul. So St. Paul was on his missionary journey, going through Asia, um, which today would be Turkey or, um, or Syria. And he came to the city of Ephesus for the first time. And when he got there, he hadn't been there yet, he found there were already some disciples, 12, about 12 men, 12 people. And he asked them if they'd received the Holy Spirit. And they said they'd never even heard that there existed a Holy Spirit. And then he asked them, well, how were you baptized? And they said they received the baptism of John, John the Baptist. Well, that's not the sacrament. John the Baptist baptized with um, a rite that was like a sacramental. It was um, a rite showing uh, repentance, but it didn't yet give the Holy Spirit. Whereas the baptism of the church in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, that's the sacramental baptism. So they hadn't even been baptized. So what does St. Paul do? He baptizes them first, 
and then he lays hands on them. Why? So that they can receive the Holy Spirit. So what do we see there? Two sacraments, baptism and confirmation. And what was the effect? The Holy Spirit came upon them, and they too spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now that doesn't happen today, but God willed that miracle of Pentecost to be repeated at these other places in the early church. Okay, so, and then the, the Catechism of the Catholic Church tells us that um, later, the, chris, the anointing with chrism was added, apparently, we don't know completely, um, as a fuller sign of what happens. In other words, a confirmation, in order to signify the anointing by the Holy Spirit, there's a physical anointing with oil. The phys- because the sacraments, they effect what they represent. Sacraments are signs, they're sacred signs, that accomplish what they represent. And so the sign here of anointing with oil and putting the hands on signifies the Holy Spirit overshadowing us. And this, by performing the rite, the Spirit is actually given, unless we pose an obstacle. In one of his letters, in his first letter, St. John speaks of um, all the Christian faithful as having been anointed. And the word anointing, by the way, is, or we say chrism, is the same root as Christ, because the word Christ is simply Greek for the anointed one, which in Hebrew is Messiah. So Messiah, Christ, and anointed are all the same uh, word. So the anointing that we receive in, chris- in um, confirmation, that chrism, is a conform- conforming us with Christ. In other words, giving us the spirit of Christ. And that's done by giving us the seven gifts of the Holy Spirit that we talked about last week. And we see that the apostles receive that in the fullest extent. So let's... Let's look now at what happened to the apostles. So on Pentecost, the apostles had a conversion. But it wasn't their first conversion. And uh, spiritual writers speak of three ages in, in the spiritual life. The spiritual life is similar to the physical life. Physical life has different ages. Right? We have childhood, we have maturity, and then old age. Or you could say childhood, adolescence, and maturity. Well, in the spiritual life, likewise, there's a childhood, there's an adolescence, and there's a full maturity. And, and the, the fathers of the church and the, the spiritual writers speak of these three ages as the purgative stage in which so what's the first thing you have to do in the spiritual life you have to uproot sin you have to uproot bad habits you have to uproot vices so the first stage is purging and then once you've purged once you've, if, if you want to make a garden grow the first thing you do is you pull out the weeds and then you plant and water and fertilize so that what comes up can be strengthened and so that would be the intermediate stage strengthening of virtue but what would be the goal in the Christian life? Union with God. And so that would be the third, final stage, the mature stage, would be what they call the unitive stage, in which you become united spiritually with Christ. And so the spiritual life has these stages, and the apostles didn't, they weren't brought from, uh, I don't know, uh, not yet being born, to the fullness all at once. They, weren't, they didn't happen overnight. They weren't made into saints overnight. And we shouldn't expect that to happen to us either. And so we see in the Gospels that the apostles had various conversions. It's interesting. The final one was Pentecost. So I just thought it would be interesting to look at these three conversions. The first one with the apostles was when they were called by Jesus. And Jesus called them. They were fishing by the Lake of Galilee. And Jesus called them. And they followed him and left beside their past life. That would be like a first conversion. They leave beside their old life and they follow Jesus. But what happens? We see they're still full of imperfections. They they quarrel about who's the greatest among them. Peter even reproves Jesus. When Jesus announces his passion, Peter says, oh, that, that won't, I know better. That won't happen with you. And um, they have a certain pride and a certain uh, rivalry. And so they're, they're not done yet. 
they were timid, they were afraid. For example, Peter said, I will go with you to die. And then what happens? The, uh, he denies him three times. And so there's a second conversion that happens, we see in Peter, after he denies Jesus three times, and then Jesus looks at him, and he repents. And so we could say that, the, in general, the cross, the Good Friday, brought the apostles, um, Good Friday and then Easter Sunday, brought the apostles to a, a second conversion. But they still weren't done. Because, for example, on Easter Sunday, they were in the upper room with the doors bolted for fear of the Jews, is the way the text goes. In other words, they were afraid. They, were, they didn't have a spirit of uh, courageous fortitude, of apostolic zeal. They were kind of locked in the upper room, which often happens to us. Right? And so it wasn't, the work wasn't done. And, and it wouldn't be done for 50 more days. And it wasn't done until Pentecost. And we see on Pentecost they were completely transformed. So up until Pentecost, we don't see Peter or the other apostles preaching. But what happens on the very day of Pentecost itself? Peter preaches to the people. That's the, um, chapter 2 of Acts. And it's amazing what he says. He says, um, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, his mighty works, wonders, and signs, this Jesus you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Well, that, that takes courage to say that. But God raised him up, having loosed the pangs of death, because it's not possible for him to be held by it. Repent, be baptized, each one of you, for the forgiveness of sins, and you shall receive the Holy Spirit. And so you can see Peter's totally transformed, and he's, above all, he's filled with charity, because that's what ultimately converts people. And so a, a harvest was made of 3,000 people, 3,000 of those who were there. The church, up until Pentecost, was 120. So on the day of Pentecost, they got like a 25-fold increase, a 25-fold harvest which shows the transformation that they underwent. And then we see that similar things later on. A few days later, when he, or sometime later, he cures the lame man. He and John cure the man born lame. And a similar discourse. He says, you, um, you delivered up and denied Jesus in the presence of Pilate. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. Now I know you acted in ignorance, so forth and so on. And therefore... Repent, be converted, so that your sins may be blotted out. In other words, we see Peter and John filled with fortitude, filled with zeal, and when they were um, flogged, they counted that as a great cause for rejoicing, because they were given to suffer something for the Lord. And so totally different than how they were 50 days earlier. And then we see the same effect in the whole Christian community, because the, the Christian community had all things in common. For example, Acts, that same chapter of Acts 2, verses 44 to 47 says, And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they sold their possessions and goods and distributed them to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they partook of food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, and the Lord added to their number day by day, etc. In other words, we see this beautiful picture of the Christian community living in spiritual unity and in uh, spiritual poverty for the sake of charity. And that was the result of the gift of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost. And that same Spirit is given to us in confirmation. Now, some of you may ask, well, why don't we see the same effects in our lives as we see in the Acts of the Apostles, in the lives of the Apostles? Well, the, the ultimate answer is because um, God gives His gifts, right? But we also have a part to play. And that part is our cooperation and our preparing the ground. This is, I tried to say before, the spiritual life is like this garden. And if you've got weeds in there, the gift of the Holy Spirit is blocked in its effects partly by those weeds. And so you have to, you have to take them out. In other words, you have, we, each one of us has to go through these three stages that we see that the apostles went through. And if we've been confirmed, we, and we haven't gone through those stages yet, we still have to go through them in order for confirmation to have its full effect in us today. 
In other words, the sacraments that we've received, they continue to live in us, baptism and confirmation, and the more we dispose ourselves by taking up those weeds or encouraging the virtues to grow, the more that sacrament that we received, perhaps when we were young, um, can have its full fruit. Right? So we need to work and pray so that we can um, get the same fruit that was given to um, the apostles and the early church there. Now one last point. The, um, the connection... Do you remember at the beginning... Um, we said that Pentecost, Jewish Pentecost had two aspects. There was the principal one was commemorating the gift of the law. But there was a, and we see how that's fulfilled in the Christian Pentecost by the gift of the Spirit. But there was also that other aspect of giving thanks for the first fruits of the harvest. Well, that's also fulfilled in Christian Pentecost. Because except not as a physical harvest, but as a spiritual harvest. That first Christian Pentecost was the first harvest of the apostolic activity of the church. In other words, the first public preaching by the church took place on Pentecost, and the harvest was great. It was the 3,000 souls on the one hand. So there was one aspect of that would correspond to the first fruits, spiritual first fruits. So there's a first fruit, we could say, of apostolate, in other words, attracting others to the church. And then there's another first fruit, which is even more important, which is the gifts of grace that were given to the, In other words, those gifts of conversion and holiness. That also is a kind of first fruit. Right? And so that... First Pentecost and Confirmation, in a way, um, celebrates sacramentally the first spiritual fruits and our thanksgiving for it. And so, through the sacraments, the church is kept ever young. And above all, through Confirmation. Um, well, not just Confirmation, but Confirmation in a sense, through the gift of the Holy Spirit, the church is given that spirit of first fruits. But again, we have to correspond so that we can have the full. Um, effect, the full spiritual effects of baptism and confirmation. Right? And so we need to pray, and we should pray um, in the time that separates us from Pentecost, that um, we receive a fuller outpouring of the Spirit, and that that prophetic expectation of Israel for the outpouring of the Spirit may be ever more completely realized, and that they may come to partake in it. Right? And so with that, I'm going to leave you, and um, thank you so much for coming to these talks, and uh, hopefully the plan is that next fall we'll continue with them, God willing, and I thought that we'd speak on the church more, we continue with the church, and the time of the, um, the time of the Gentile, in other words, the, the history of the church as well. So we'll look at the nature of the church and the history of the church, and other topics that some of you are interested in, you can also suggest. Okay. Well, we have come to the end of Dr. Lawrence Feingold's talk on Pentecost as the fulfillment of the Jewish feast of Shavuos. I hope you enjoyed it. That's all the time we have for today. I hope you join us again next week on Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. Bye for now.